A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by 20 Minute Duff. 20 Minute Duff is a clear and concise shear given by Reb Shol Greenwald with clarity. It's perfect for people with short on for short on time or looking to review the Duff Yaimi. The shear uh, does not go really over time. It's 20, maximum 25 minutes, unlike me, who I always go over time. And um, Dafyemi uh, is starting, finishing Erevin and starting Psachim this coming Monday. So anyone who uh, dropped out because of the Erevin challenges, so it's a great time to get back on. You could subscribe on all podcast platforms to 20 Minute Daf or join WhatsApp group at 20minutedaf.com. I can personally vouch for um, this enjoyable, clear uh, sheer, which I've listened to as a Dafyami participant and find it useful. Um, this is our part two in, uh, but we just had Rabaran Cutler's yard site, and I did part one just the other day. Um, and of course, last year on the yard site, I did about... Uh, Rabbi Aaron Cutler's activism and Chinachat and other things. So you want to check out those other two. And this one is another part. Uh, there's definitely room for many more in the future. But this will just uh, focus on another aspect of his uh, life. Uh, the Kletzk years and then the war years and moving to the United States and starting the Lakewood uh, Yeshiva. We'll talk a little bit about that. So there's three things that happen in the 1920s and 30s that are adumbrating what's going to happen and and, and really going to um, show what's going to happen to you know Rabaran Cutler's later accomplishments in life in the United States. In the 1920s and 30s, when he's in Kletsk, um, is is a kind of an introductory period, if we can look at that, like at that in, in retrospect. Um, number one, in really three different ways. Number one, there's the growth of the Kletsk Yeshiva and of Rabbi Aaron as a leading Rosh Yeshiva. There's a very, very prominent cornerstone laying for a yeshiva, the Yeshiva building in Kletsk. You know, he, of course, escapes 
from Soviet uh, held, we mentioned last time, uh, uh, Slutsk in 1921, when he starts the yeshiva in Kletsk right across the border in, in uh, independent Poland. And there's a very prominent cornerstone laying in the late 1920s where many dignitaries and Russia yeshiva are invited and very, very uh, large gathering. And then the building dedication in the mid-30s, I think 34, 35, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we go to the building. When I go to Belarus with groups, we check out the Kletsk Yeshiva building. It's always a nice stop on the visit. Very prominent until today. It looks like a very neglected, but a very impressive uh, building. Um, that's one you know, facet of Rabarin Kutler. The other one is his rising leadership in the Agudis Yisrael. He attends the third Knesset Gedayla of Agudis Yisrael in Marienbad in Czechoslovakia. And he is already at that young age. He's uh, in his forties. He's already a prominent member and leader in the Agudis Yisrael, and is known as an Agudist and someone who stands prominently for its ideals. And becomes, in a certain way, the early years of his world leadership. And the third is, you know, presumably a very minor episode in his pre-war life, but it would turn out to have a major. Uh, impact is his fundraising trip to the United States. In the 1930s, he takes a long, extended trip to the United States to fundraise for his yeshiva, like many other Rashi yeshiva of his day. And this is his first exposure to America. And this is America's first exposure to him. And uh, a couple of years later, when he would uh, escape and make it there safely um, from war-torn Europe, and and he would seek to rebuild so there were those who remembered him from his visit, and he remembered them from his visit, and so that, that planted seeds as well. Now, Kletz becomes one of the largest and most prominent yeshivas in the Lithuanian area of Poland uh, before the war. And, uh, in fact, I, I saw a fascinating and very rare testimony about Kletzk and Rabarin in the YIVO autobiography collection. There's this a boy who's a struggling boy from a prominent Hasidic home, and he lives in a Hasidic shtetl, and his father's a rabbi, and he has a very tumultuous uh, childhood, and he's in a, and at one point he's in a Navardic yeshiva, and uh, in Pinsk, and other places, and he has this tumultuous uh, um, ups and downs, and he ends up studying in Kletsk for a couple of years. And he had, while he was in Kletsk, he had quite an active life outside the yeshiva, Without going into too many details, he had a girlfriend, he had this, he had that, he was, he was very involved in all kinds of things, yet he was still applying himself to his learning, to his studying, and doing very well in the yeshiva, in his learning. So he mentions that that at the end of uh, Azman, the Rosh Yeshiva, and he says this is the Rosh Yeshiva of Kletsk, but he does not mention his name. I don't know why, he goes out of his way to not mention the name of the Rosh Yeshiva of Kletsk. He says he called him in at the end of the Zman, and, and he seemed to be aware of his activities outside the yeshiva, and he says to him, we don't have any issues with you. You know why? Because you're progressing nicely, you're learning nicely. But if you would apply yourself more to your studies, and less to the other distractions that you have, then you'd be growing even more and doing even better, and that's what you know he, he's expecting him to do in the next Zman. So it's a, you know, a very interesting and very personal insight into... Um, Reb Arons as the Rosh Yeshiva of Kletsk before the war. When the war breaks out, um, so like every other yeshiva, so 
There's the call to Vilna, which actually happens in Kletzka in an interesting way. Rabbi Aaron Cutler himself goes to Vilna without the yeshiva um, to seek out the advice of Rabbi Chaim Weiser-Grajensky. And then he tells the yeshiva to follow him, to come to come along from Kletzk to Vilna. And uh, the yeshiva, who had at that time already left Kletzk and taken up refuge in Baranovich, which is not that far, uh, dropped drop more north, uh, a, so it's kind of already on the way to Vilna. So they get this telegram from Rabaran on a Friday, and they're preparing to settle down for Shabbos in Baranovich. And they ask Rabaran, when should we go? And Rabaran uh, says, is it safe to go to Vilna, whatever it was? And Rabaran sends a telegram back that arrives an hour before Shabbos, come and take the Friday night train. And the Kletzky Shiva, after making Kiddush, and davening, they get on, in the train station, they get on the train Friday night uh, based on the orders of their Rosh Hashiva, and they t- they arrive in, in Vilna. Now, um, they settle for, in Vilna, then like every other yeshiva, there's the Lithuanian government, the re- refugee crisis in the city, so they settle them on the outlying uh, villages and shtetls, so they, they end up in Yanova, which is actually closer to Kovna, it's right outside of, right north of Kovna, and um and then they're there in independent Lithuania, but of course in the summer of 1940, in June, over, over the summer, by August 1940, they, the Lithuania and the Baltic states are absorbed into the Soviet Union. And then the after the Soviet takeover, so the yeshiva splits up into three different shtetlach in Lithuania, Doshad, Dukšt, and, and uh, Salok. The majority, the largest group was in Salak, or Baron Cutler himself was in Salak, and the Mashkiach, Rebesev Leibnednik, was in one of the other ones, and a group of elder uh, Talmidim were in the third one. Um, so Reb Aaron is running around trying to help the yeshiva get visas, trying to find any way out, um, and it's a time of crisis. So I guess to give a little bit of background, one of the most important and what I find to be most misunderstood uh, time periods is the time period between 1939, the outbreak of the war in September, September 1939, and June 22, 1941, when the Nazis invade the Soviet Union. That less than two-year period is a very confusing time because we have a situation where there's a non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. In other words, they're kind of like allies. They're not fighting each other. And the, in addition to them not fighting each other and them being sort of allies, they had agreed that the secret clause uh, was to divide up Poland. And the Soviet Union, the Red Army, invades eastern Poland on September 17th and, and takes over eastern Poland and eventually the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, also in the summer of 1940. So the Jews in eastern Poland from September 1939 and the Jews in the Baltic states from the summer of 1940, are under Soviet occupation, and there's a Sovietization of those countries and those areas. So there's a, you know, religion is targeted, and and Zionism and political organization and Jewish culture. In other words, everything that the that the Soviets did in the Soviet Union after the revolution in 1917, they're doing now to the new areas that they occupied. So anyone running away from those areas is running away from Soviet occupation and Soviet oppression, and no one imagines that the Nazis are going to invade. In other words, no one 
is guessing that uh, that uh, that next year we should get out in time now from the Soviets because next year the Nazis are going to invade this area, right? So Western Poland, Nazis are in Western Poland, the general in Central Poland. They're setting, they're establishing ghettos and they're persecuting Jews. That's all happening already in 1939, 40, 41, in the areas under Nazi occupation, but not in the areas under Soviet occupation. So anyone who's running away at this point in those areas is running from Soviet occupation. I'm only, uh, and I apologize for repeating this for people who already are familiar with this, but I find that it's a bit of a misconception, so I'm just trying to emphasize the point. Um, so when the yeshivas who are all in Lithuania and the Vilna area at that time, are trying to leave, no one is running away from the Nazis. No one dreams they're running away from the Nazis. They're running away from the Soviets because the Soviets tried to close yeshivas and persecute rabbis and rabbinical figures. They're anti-revolutionary. And Baron Cutler was arrested by the NKVD and he was interrogated by them. And he, by miracle, he got out. So he himself experienced that. Um, in fact, I once asked the uh, the head of the uh, Hasidei Umot Olam, the Righteous Among the Nations division at Yad Vashem. I once asked him when I was you know worked in working in Yad Vashem. So, I mean now it's closed, but then uh, so I asked him, you know, Chiyuni Sugihara, the famous hero. I'm I'm all for him, you know. I'm a big into the mirror story and everything and. But I'm, I'm just curious, under the criteria of Yad Vashem, the basic, the most basic criteria for recognizing someone as a righteous among the nations was that they saved someone from Nazi occup- under Nazi occupation. And Sugihara did not. He saved them under Soviet occupation. In retrospect, two years later, when it seemed, when it was the, when the Nazis invaded and the people that he had saved from the Soviet occupation were far away on the other side of the world, so it became apparent that they were not killed by the Nazis because they were not there. But that's not called him saving them from under Nazi occupations. How come Yad Vashem recognizes him as a righteous among the nations? And I'm not taking anything away from his hero status, and don't get me wrong, please don't misunderstand me. That's not my point. I'm talking about the strict uh, criteria of Nazi occupation as opposed to Soviet. And he said uh, essentially that I'm right, but uh, Chuni Sugihara is too much of a hero to not consider him a righteous among the nations. So, you know, that's that's the, the an exception. Either way, that was just an example. Um, so what happens is, is that Rabarin Cutler at some point makes a decision to leave. Why? Why and when? So the Vat Hatzala organization is established at the request of Reb Chaim Eiser, to Reb Eliezer Silver in America, in the United States, uh, to to help the yeshiva boys to the, to raise money for them to try to help them get visas to help the yeshiva students and rabbis it was a organization very limited in scope it was to help it was to assist yeshiva students and rabbis with funding and to try to escape from soviet uh, occupied areas that was the vadhatsala much much later in the war when the final solution already became apparent um and uh, and it re- you know reached the United States and much later than that it was late 1943 when most of uh, most of those who were eventually to be killed in the Holocaust were already killed, um, um, but the, at that point the Varatzala decided to expand the sp- scope of its activities to include the entire Jewish people in Nazi-occupied Europe and to expand the rescue activities 
um, but that was much later. At this point, it's it's a a operation to assist yeshiva students and rabbis to try to help them out, and um, that starts already right at the beginning of the war, and the the passing of Reb Chaim Moser Grzynski in August of 1940, hey of 1940, um, brings a crisis. Um, he was the leader. He was the undisputed leader, and everyone relied on him, and he had these broad shoulders of responsibility. That, that, And with his passing, it created this vacuum that you know, let out a lot of steam in the Vada Atzala. And then, of course, was the Soviet, at the same exact time, in July, August 1940, the Soviet takeover of the Baltic states, so it made it much more difficult for, this, for the Vada Atzala to be able to rescue and send money to there. There also seemed to be a lack of options. So most countries would not allow the distributing of visas to, to get to that country, especially the United States. Uh, there was a lack of leadership, like I said, with Chaim Meiser's passing. And the Vadatzel had kind of run out of steam, and it didn't seem like anything was happening. Rabbi Aaron Cutler makes a decisive decision because of all that, what I just mentioned, that if he leaves and he works from the outside and he reinvigorates the Varadzala, and he takes the leadership, and he was someone with boundless energy and, 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 and initiative and charisma, that he would take the leadership and he would turn the organization around, and he knew that he could do it, and he knew it was up to him. So he decides to take the very, very difficult decision that he resisted for a long time to be separated from his students. And he made that decision at the end of 1940, in other words, several months after the, the, the summer events that I mentioned, and he actually leaves on, in February of 1941 on an emergency Vadhatsala rabbinical visa, uh, or Vadhatsala rabbinical emergency visa. And um, I remember my, uh, my wife's grandfather, who was learning in the Salak uh, by Rabaran Cutler at that time, he told me that uh, he said we were devastated when Rabaran left. It was like losing their father. They, they, couldn't, they didn't know what to do with themselves. Um, but that was, that was what had to be done. And um, so he goes through Japan, and he arrives in the United States, in San Francisco. He crosses uh, the country, and he arrives in Penn Station in Manhattan, in New York City, on April 21st, 1941. The history of the United States Jewry is about to be changed forever. And um, before we do that, we'll, we'll just... Uh, what happens to the Kletzkers, the, 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 the yeshiva... So unfortunately, I mean, some of them got visas, like my grandfather, like others, they got visas, they're able to get out. Some of them, to Shanghai, to other places, there was a whole Kletzk faction, part of the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai, and some got visas straight to the United States and other places. Some were exiled to Siberia. There's a famous book written by Alter Pecker, a fantastic book, actually, from Kletzk to Siberia, about his experiences and other Kletzkers that were with him. But most, unfortunately, were killed by the Nazis when they invaded the Soviet Union a year later, uh, several months later, actually, in June, um, including a Mashkiach, the great uh, Regesif Leib Nednik. Um, so Rabarin arrives at Penn Station, and he, um, he, and he gets off the train, and he's introduced. And, you know, Mike Tress is there with a group from the Tzirei Agudas Yisrael, and there's other activists, and Irving Bunim is there, Blazer Silver, and a whole group to greet him, this great Torah leader. And he, and he says, he's, he starts to speak and with a fire in his eyes. And right away, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't give any introductions. He says, on the other side of the ocean, our brothers are waiting for our help. 
Only you, the Jews of America, are able to help them. Do it now. Save them. I didn't come to this country to save myself or to seek positions of personal power. Rather, I'm here so that with your help we can save our brothers and the great centers of Torah learning in Europe. And then he goes on, and I'm not going to read the entire text of someone who, who wrote it down and summarized it afterwards. He then goes on to, in the same vein for another couple of minutes. Literally, he's jumping right in exactly what he has in mind for what his purpose and his mission in the United States is. The next morning, some of the dignitaries who had been there greet to greet him, they received a phone call. And the phone call said, it's Cutler here. Uh, what has been done for rescue since yesterday? And people knew he meant business. And all of a sudden, it, this, it gave a new life to the whole rescue activities altogether. Uh, for the next several years, and of course an entire book and then several episodes can be devoted to his rescue activities during the war, um, which I'm not going to get into now. He was completely absorbed by his Varatzala activities during the war. And hopefully we'll have an opportunity to get to it another time. He breathed a new life into the organization. But at the same time, there's this slow expansion. Um, uh, I'm sorry. There's the, first, there's the slow expansion of the Vad Hatzala beyond its original role as a result of the final solutions. That's one thing that happens in 1943, late 1943. But at the other time, there are other things developing that's going to cause Reb Aaron uh, to get involved in, in, in the, the United States Jewish community beyond just rescue work. What happens is, is that Reb Nassim Vachtfeigl, who was a Canadian, who had been st- first studied at the Mir Yeshiva, later in Kelm, and um, he, was, he had been at Rabbi Yisrael when he was in America. So he, he and uh, several others, several of his friends, Shmuel Shechter and others, they start a kailo in White Plains in Westchester, in New York, in the summer of 1942. And this is for really the first real kailo in, in America. And he starts it with his friends, several others, a bunch of people who deserve the credit, actually. And they establish this, and this is going to be, they have a vision, this is going to be the beginning of Kailo life in, in America. Uh, about a year later, Reb Aaron in 1943, who again, this is in the midst of the war, he's almost entirely involved in rescue work, and he's invited by this group, by Reb Nassim, to be their leader, to be the, the head of the Kailal, to give shiurim, to be in charge. Now, there's, there's always a question that people have, that I have, about why is, why is, uh, Beis Medrash Gavaya not called Kletsk? Tells is called Tells, and Mir is called Mir. Why is Beis Medrash Gavaya not called Kletsk? It should have just retained the name like many other yeshivas did. So some say because Aaron had his vision. His vision was that he's starting anew, that he's rebuilding, and he didn't want not want to dwell on the past. It's not about Kletsk, it's about building Torah in the United States. But perhaps the real reason is because he's not the one who started it. Reb Nassim Vachtfeigl started it. Reb Aaron was invited or, or hired by them to become in charge, and it eventually becomes his yeshiva. But um, but that's, you know, they might have had the name, based on, I think they did, have the name based Medrash Kavaya even prior to that, so you know it wasn't you know it wasn't Kletsk, it was already based Medrash Kavaya. So a couple of years later, they moved to Lakewood. Lakewood was a resort town at that time at hotels. It was far away. There was no Verrazano Bridge, and without a Verrazano Bridge, Lakewood and the whole central New Jersey was far away from New York City. It was like a distant world. So it was very resort. A lot of people vacation there. There were all kinds of conventions there. Um, and uh, and um, 
and 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 that's and that's that seemed to be a distant uh, rural place for the yeshiva to begin. Uh, Rabaran himself lived in Bara Park, uh, but he came to the yeshiva to teach, so he stayed in Bara Park. Now, b- beyond Vatatzala and Lakewood, he starts to get involved in the Agudas Yisrael of America and the Agudas Harabanim organization. He's one of the founding together with Rabshaga Fivel and. And others, he's 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 in, in the, he's the one who gets gets Tyro Masira, uh, day schools and and Jewish education off the ground. He gets very involved in in what what's going on in Israel, and he subsequently made several many many visits to Israel. And he's in, after his father was passing in Eitzchayim, he's he's sort of in charge of the Eitzchayim Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He's the the main like I spoke about last year. Um, he's the main uh, instigator of, of founding Chinuch Hatzmoy, the independent uh, Torah education in Israel. So he in, becomes involved in everything. Um, in the early years in Lakewood, so after the war, refugees start to arrive in the United States. So several of the Kletzkers who survived, they uh, they go to Lakewood. So it, it's very different because you have the core of American students who started the yeshiva, and then you have the old Klutzkers who remember the Rabaran from before the war, and it's a, an interesting mix, and um, and and uh, and you know becomes a new a new synthesis, a new situation. Um, I remember I used to attend. You know, they had this uh, yard site Shabbos, the Shabbos Rabaran in the Lakewood East Yeshiva. In those days, it was on uh, Saratskin in Yerushalayim, and I used to go every year for Shabbos for several years to. To hear, they used to have an entire Shabbos de- of stories de- dedicated to the Torah of Rabbar and also the stories. I'll be honest, I went more for the stories than the Torah. And, and Rabbaran's uh, grandson, Rabbi Yaakov, is a Schwartzman, and he used to bring in usually Rabbi Leib Hyman, Zechrein Levrach, a great man, one of the close students of Rabbaran Cutler. He was the Rav of the Grashul and Bayit Vagan. And, um, and sometimes he would bring in other Talmidim of Rabbaran. So I remember a lot of stories from those years and Unfortunately, I don't remember which one. Was it his Rabbaran's grandson, or was it Rabbi Hyman, or was it someone else? I'll just relate a few of those stories. So one of them said that the American students who came to Lakewood in the early years, they they essentially, if they came at all, this is you know, very courageous to even come, uh, because you know, the, the Rabbaran's ideal was that it would be no no secular studies, no college, no what isn't even really smicha-oriented. Um, it was just to study Torah. And the, so they, the one, anyone who did come in the early years, they came really for a year, uh, the, half a year, a year. They wouldn't come for longer. And Rabbi Aaron Cutler and Rabbi Nassim would would convince them to stay longer, to convince them to stay, stay two years, three years, just stay, keep keep studying. And Rabbi Nassim Vachtoigel was there all week. Rabbi Aaron was in Bar Park and running around and fundraising everything and running the Jewish people. But he would come to Lakewood every Shabbos. He would eat with the Talmidim. He gave a shear on Shabbos. He also gave once during the week. Um, and along at the same time, he had a, an exposure to what the, what America is all about. His grandson related that, uh, you know, he was, his parents were divorced, Rabbi Schwartzman and Rabbi Cutler's daughter. So his, his grandchildren were, uh, were raised by Rabbi and he went to an American school. So he was once reading a book and Rabbi looks into his room and says, what are you reading? And he said, I'm reading a book report for school. He says, what's the book about? He said, it's about the great president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. So he said, Abraham Lincoln? He said, see, he was a non-Jew. So he said, yeah, but he was a very good president. He was known as Honest Abe. 
he was very good and he, you know, very, uh, you know, hero and whatever. And Rav Aaron says to him, Agoy is Agoy vi Alagoyim. A guy is a guy like everyone else. And he said it was an important lesson that even the greatest one, even someone like Abraham Lincoln, but to remember that, w- that the Jewish people are distinct and they have the special role in the world. Um, this, this same grandson uh, recalled a visiting. I, I've seen the, the story brought in other sources that with different people, but I, I, see, I think I remember hearing it from him that he visited the Satmarov together with his grandfather, Rabaran. Other versions say it was the Gerab or others. I think I think it was the Satmarov though, and the Satmarov offered the young boy, the young child, a fruit. And being that he grew up in a Litvisha home, he said, uh, "No, thank you. I'm not hungry." And uh, and the Satmarov said, or whoever you know, fill in your favorite Rebbe said, uh, He's not going to become. We see already that he's not going to become a Chassid. And Reb Aaron Cutler turns to his grandchild and says, Zag omein, a bracha for not tzaddik. You say omein, you got a, you received a bracha from this tzaddik. So uh, again, the respect and the relationship that he had with the great Hasidic leaders of his time, and they worked together in many areas, but at the same time, he had his very strong Lithuanian identity. Um, when he received money, Rabban received money from someone after officiating at a wedding, so the person gave him a monetary gift, and that person clarified that it was not for Lakewood Yeshiva, it was for Rabaran personally. And Rabaran said, oh, it's for me personally? Fantastic. So he went ahead and gave the money to Chinuch He thought originally that the money was for Lakewood, so he wasn't allowed to donate it to Chinuch But since it was for himself personally, he gave the entire sum to Chinuch Um One time, there's another story I heard from them. Uh, uh, he, this uh, One time someone comes over to Rabaran and asks him advice. I have one dollar to give to tzedakah. Should I give it to Chinuch Atzmai, or should I give it to a Yerushalmi school that does Chinuch Al-Taharas HaKodesh, meaning that it does not take any money from the government. And of course, Chinuch Atzmai, even though it only received partial funding, but it got substantial funding from the Israeli government. So it's not pure. It has tainted with, with the Zionist funding. So he wants to give his dollar to a, a school to help fund a, a school that does not receive any money. On the other hand, he knows that Rav Aaron is very pro Chinuch So what should he do? He's coming to seek advice. Rav Aaron turns to him and says, you're worried about your dollar. And he says, I'm concerned about the future of the Jewish people. And that's the responsibility. But what concerns you is your little dollar. And it's a different perspective. In his efforts to spread Torah in the United States, aside from the decisive role he played, like I said, in Torah Masora, but he worked to expand Lakewood and ideologically to to build it as a yeshiva that would not, like I said, not have any secular studies, um, or even that smicha should not be the stated goal of the yeshiva, which was, you know, somewhat revolutionary in America at the time. And then he wanted to expand it even further. He sent his son-in-law, his son-in-law at the time, uh, Reb Dave Schwartzman, who was who was an amazing personality. I met him a couple of times. He was, a, he was the superstar from the Hebron Yeshiva. He was Israeli. The superstar from the Hebron Yeshiva in, in Yerushalayim. And a, a, a genius, a tremendous Talmud Chacham. In fact, his, his, uh, one of his sons-in-law from, uh, told me that, uh, that, um, that uh, from a second marriage, told me that, that when he married Rabbi Aaron Cutler's daughter, there was, like again, this is reflective of what America looked like. It's nothing to do with Rabbi Aaron. It has to do with 
what America was at that time, that the, that the seating at, at the wedding was mixed. I don't know if the whole thing, maybe some tables were, some tables weren't, but at least some of the tables were mixed because that, that's just what the United States was. Hard to believe at the time, uh, now. Is, uh, that's the, but the, the reason it's hard to believe is largely due to the credit of people like Rebaran Cutler. Either way, so he married um, Sarah Pesha Cutler, Rebaran's only daughter. Rebaran had two children, Abshner and his daughter Sarah Pesha. And after the divorce, so she was later active in politics. I think she had a PhD from some university. She was a very interesting individual. She passed away in 1985. And Rabbi Schwartzman, after his, following his, following his the, the divorce, he returned to Israel. He started later the base of Talmud Yeshiva in Sanhedrin Murchavet. But either way, he is sent by Rab Aaron and his father-in-law and Rab Shmuel Kamenetsky, who may live and be well, to start a yeshiva in Philadelphia, which laid the basis of Lakewood building yeshivas across America, around the country. So I would like to end off with um, with one, you know, uh, my personal thing that I, I say to the groups. I want to go back to that building in Kletsk that I opened up with. This episode. It's a message that I say to my groups when we stand in front of the building out in Belarus in Kletsk, magnificent building which used for such a short period of time, really like a cut three, four, five years max. It's a pity almost, and it's left in such haste and even panic, never to return. So sad, so tragic. But I tell them perhaps we can view the entire building. And the years of its use as one long groundbreaking ceremony, with the building dedication happening a decade later and across the ocean. Kletsk planted the seeds on which the great edifice of Lakewood was built and has flourished, and it has all to do with the vision of one man, Rabaran Cutler. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com. Make sure to check out 20 Minute Daf. And uh, you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on uh, your favorite podcast platform or um, 